Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com From Equity Mates Media, this is The Dive. I'm your host, Sasha Kelly. In late November, nationwide protests broke out across China as unrest over the government's zero-COVID policy reached breaking point. Anti-government slogans that were once whispered now shouted in the streets of Shanghai. President Xi's insistence on maintaining a strict COVID zero policy resulted in years of intermittent lockdowns and harsh restrictions in China. As the world reopened, China remained shut. But in the past month, as cases spiked and people dreaded further lockdowns, we saw the biggest protests in China since Tiananmen Square. And now the government has responded by abandoning the strictest of its policies. It's Wednesday, the 14th of December, and today I want to know what's going on in China and what would a reopening mean for the world's second largest economy? To talk about this today, I'm joined by my colleague here at Equity Mates. It's Darcy Cordell. Darcy, welcome to the dive. Thanks, Sasha. So this story was front and center a couple of weeks ago, but it certainly received less coverage in the last week. What is the latest in China? The white paper protests have been almost completely subdued, Sasha. And now, as you said, China has ditched most of its COVID restrictions, including the itinerary code app, which was a state-mandated or compulsory tracking app that people had to use to scan into all public places. Before you continue, Darcy, the white paper protests, you're talking about the A4 sheets of paper that we saw Chinese citizens holding up. That was a commentary on the fact that they can't say anything for risk of being censored or having retaliation by the government. That's exactly right, Sasha. It's um, it's a way of saying a lot without saying anything. But I'm not the right person to speak on this topic, Sasha. So today we've got an expert in who most definitely is the right person. I had a chat with Richard McGregor, who is Senior Fellow for East Asia at the Lowy Institute. Richard is a former Beijing and Washington Bureau Chief for the Financial Times, and he's the author of numerous books on East Asia. Here's my chat with Richard. Richard, thanks so much for joining us on The Dive today. Hi there. So we're talking about China today and we've seen in the last couple of weeks some really large protests we haven't seen the size of since potentially Tiananmen Square. Can you set the scene in China today though, a few weeks after these white paper protests really escalated? Yes, well, you would have seen that there actually are are no protests at the moment. In other words, the security forces are stamped them out pretty quickly. And in fact, the whole system in China uh, is set up, the policing system that is, to ensure that nothing like 1989 ever happens again. I mean, I should say it's not unusual to have protests in China. Everywhere you, you go in China every day, there are all manner of protests, but usually they are hyper local and, you know, focused on local issues like, you know, wage theft or pollution or something like that. The big difference about the protests three weeks ago is they were national and they were networked and they were all about the same thing, you know, uh, COVID zero and highly political. 
So that's what made them high, highly unusual. And of course, it's why um, the uh, authorities were highly alerted and made sure to stamp them out very quickly. Richard, some of the videos coming out of China a few weeks ago showed Apple's iPhone factory in Zhangjiao and protests erupting from there. Is that where these protests began or what set them off? Well, there were a couple of factors. You know, the Apple factory in, in Zhangzhou, for example, that, by the way, is where 80% of the world's iPhones are made. They've had a little bit of unrest about COVID-0 getting into some of the dormitories where the uh, workers met, uh, uh, um, you know, live. And the other issue with the, the, uh, the Apple factories was that, you know, to get extra people in uh, to make up for people who were worried about COVID or who'd run away from the factories, they offered special uh, payment bonuses every month. But then again, they didn't pay them. And so that's what really sparked the protest, people uh, claiming they were underpaid and that itself was related to COVID. That was kind of one, in, in some respects, uh, you know, an isolated incident. The thing that really set off the nationwide protest uh, a protest was a fire in Urumqi in Xinjiang in western China. There was an apartment fire and the, the fire engines couldn't get close enough to put it out uh, because the building was, you know, all uh, boarded up uh, for, for, for COVID isolation and therefore basically about 10 people, uh, including three children, burnt to death. And I think that sort of just, you know, had a resonance around the country and that was the sort of immediate trigger to bring people out onto the streets. And Richard, you said most of the protests have settled now. Is that an indication that people are happy with the response from Xi and the government or is it just the power of his, I guess, forces to stamp down the protests? Oh, no, it's absolutely the, the, the latter. The protests haven't settled. They've been suppressed. Um, you know, they, they're relatively sophisticated in how they... Uh, uh, put them down. They don't sort of w wade into the crowds with truncheons and beat the crap out of people. They will take people's names, they will film them and identify them through facial recognition, they will visit them at home, ring their parents, ring their employers, try to persuade them if they're not persuaded, arrest a few of them. In fact, it was really remarkable that these protests were sort of snuffed out in just a couple of days. We haven't seen one uh, since then, which doesn't mean the discontent is not still there. It just means the authorities can keep it off the streets. Yeah, okay. So she and the government, they have, I guess, relaxed some of their COVID zero policies now. Can you give us a little bit of an indication of what they've done and whether it's maybe shown the Chinese people that they can have an impact on Xi's decision making? Yeah, that's the really fascinating question. You know, why were the uh, restrictions, the COVID zero restrictions, which, had, you know, the government only weeks before had said were there to stay for the moment. Why were they relaxed? Plus, of course, uh, China's going into winter when in theory the virus will spread more easily and the population is not highly vaccinated. So so what happened? I think two things happened. One of them was, was the protests. I think that did move the needle in the leadership. Uh, I don't know whether they were surprised by it or whether it played into a factional debate in the leadership where some people had been urging uh, an opening up and the process sort of helped their case. I think the thing that really penetrated uh, is the fact that COVID zero is basically taking a hammer blow to the economy. You know, about zero growth for the first six months of this year, just a couple of percent or more for the rest of the year. And I, I think the, the leadership can't tolerate that. Uh, it had become, the economic situation had become too severe and that's probably the main reason for their about turn. 
on on COVID again, do you think we can trust China's the case numbers that that they're reporting and the casualties now that they have relaxed these policies? No, there's no way we can um, trust the current figures. In fact, they've really stopped recording them in many respects. You know, people have stopped testing. And so we don't have reliable figures in that respect. I think it's a little bit too early to talk about people dying. I don't think um, we're at that stage yet, although it's likely we will be at some stage. But but no, the um, all the sort of mechanisms which China used to trace COVID cases and individuals, you know, the apps on your phone and all that sort of thing, they've gone almost overnight. And that means we don't have any figures. What we do have... It's just an enormous amount of anecdotal information, you know, from many, many cities now. It's sort of travelling up the Yangtze and the like of mass outbreaks of cases. And so if you look at the pictures of the streets of Beijing and Shanghai at the moment, they look like they're under lockdown because everybody uh, is staying inside or, work. you know, workers are too sick to go to work and the like. See, this is the funny thing about it is that People predicted this before opening up, is that I think the government had made the population so frightened of COVID that once they did open up, people are too frightened to go outside. They stay at, they stay at home. So China's opened up, but it still looks like it's a lockdown. It's, it's fascinating. We're going to hear more of Darcy's interview with Richard in just a moment, but first let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. People across China are not happy. And their anger exploded on the streets for several days. Thousands of protesters took to the streets of Shanghai, calling for President Xi Jinping to step down. This weekend saw protests in cities all across China, sparked by opposition to the government's strict COVID lockdowns. Richard, we've touched on the, you know, the economy and the, the impacts of China's COVID zero stance. I, I saw a few reports during that sort of Zhang Zhao outbreak, um, Apple said that they were thinking about taking away some of their production or reliance on China and maybe moving their operations to other Asian countries. Have you seen that happen anywhere else? Or how, how are companies sort of responding to the protests and China's stance of COVID? Well, this is a live issue. And the, one of the interesting reports we've seen out on recent days, um, you know, one of the reasons for the opening up is that the head of the Taiwanese company Foxconn, which is the, the big contract manufacturer, had written to the leaders and said, you've got to open up, otherwise the economy is going to collapse. So that brings us to the, directly to your question about Apple production. You know, it sounds easy in theory. In practice, it's, it's not so easy. So let, let me give you an example. In Zhengzhou, Hunan, uh, in central China, where the, the, the iPhones are put together, I think there's about... 235 factories making 610 different parts which go into the iPhone, half of them in China, and all of them sitting around the the factory where the iPhones are put together. On top of that, the Chinese have mastered the art of logistics, so you can get the, by the from factory to sort of the, the iPhone store in Sydney or Los Angeles, three days. So you can't simply lift up 100 factories out of China, put it in India, put it in Vietnam. Not only that, you can't simply have the same calibre or numbers of workers, uh, skilled workers, uh, Chinese workers, uh, who put it all together. So there's no way that Apple can quickly uh, move its production uh, out of China. 
It's, yeah, it's a good point. It's such a big operation. I guess pushing that point a little bit further, we've seen global trade has obviously been affected by China's COVID lockdowns. Do you expect now that China seems to be opening things to normalise quickly or how long do you think this transition period might take? I think the answer to that is really uncertain at the moment. You know, it depends how quickly the virus spreads, uh, how quickly China gets vaccinated, uh, how quickly Chinese people quote unquote, learn to live with the virus. And that will depend on, on you know, whether people uh, get really sick uh, and die and in what numbers, because if that's happened, that's a big political problem for the government. And of course, any sort of interruption to sort of the, you know, Chinese uh, factory production affects the entire world because China is still basically the workshop of the world. In the first two years of COVID, they had a successful suppression strategy kept most of their factories open and kept the world supplied. Well, it might be different in the next three, four months. Already iPhone orders are going to uh, go unfilled over Christmas and uh, into the new year. And that could happen with all manner of uh, industrial and consumer goods. And to close it out, Richard, where are you watching in China now? What, what do you think will happen from here on in, say, the next six to 12 months? Well, I guess the first thing we're watching is what we just discussed then. In other words, looking for all the sort of social media in China on hospitals, queues at hospitals, grieving families and the like to get a, a sense in the absence of good official data of, of how bad uh, COVID is gripping there and whether in fact there's a trajectory, an obvious trajectory out of that by the time we get to March, April. I mean, one of the one of the big problems is that you know, the biggest travel season in China, domestic travel for the moment, is Lunar New Year, Chinese New Year, in about February, March, when literally about, you know, 200 million people, 300 million people hit the road, go back to their ancestral villages, um, you know, their hometowns and the like. I mean, talk about a super spreader event. Uh, so, you know, that's going to be, it's going to be a big uh, litmus test as whether the government allows that to go ahead. And once it's happened, if it does happen, whether there's a clear glide path out of COVID. But, you know, China has not been willing so far to pay a price for opening up. In other words, a health price, which we all have. Um, now they're experimenting with that. And I just wonder whether they can hold their nerve. Great. Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Darcy, that was a fascinating discussion, a great interview with Richard McGregor. It's always so enlightening when we get experts in to come and talk about their area of expertise. What are your key takeaways after talking to Richard? I think the key things are that China has clearly abandoned its zero COVID policy. But what we're probably going to see now is a lot of short to medium term problems arising within China. Cases are going to surge. We've got Lunar New Year coming up. Hospitals could be overwhelmed and there's still this deep fear in many Chinese people of the virus after years of strict anti-COVID language. So you can't just switch that off and turn it around. And the other interesting thing to watch or a takeaway is keeping an eye on Xi's stranglehold on power in China. As Richard said, the protests were stamped out very quickly, but it doesn't mean that the discontent with Xi and the government is gone. So something to keep an eye on. Absolutely. And we will be watching this closely. A reminder that the dive is going to take a break. Uh, next Monday, the 19th of December, is going to be our last episode for the year and we'll be back at the end of January. 
But if you enjoyed this episode, the best thing that you can do for us as a Christmas present is give us a five-star review or send it to a friend who you think might enjoy catching up with our back catalogue over the Christmas break. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram. Our handle is at the dive business news or one word. You can contact us by email, the dive at equitymates.com, and you can subscribe wherever you're listening right now so you never miss an episode. Darcy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Sasha. Until next time. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have physicians in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697.